Hey, it's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are back with part two of the Jake Factor story. Sure, sure, part two. <laughs> Colon, kidnapping, 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 <laughs> and then murder. So yes. Before we get started, as usual, don't forget our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And there you can find an absolute wealth well over 100 of our old tiny crimies, which are generally about a half an hour long. And amazing. They're so much fun. One of us tells the other one about a crime they didn't know about. And uh, we're kind of recording things out of order. So Amber doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to tell her about another kidnapping that ends in a very unexpected way. Oh, good. So it was quite a ride. <laughs> but I haven't told her that story. I will. And then if you're a patron, you can come and listen to it. That's five bucks a month, and you get five bonus episodes every month, all told. You get the four tinies and then the extra extra. All right. So last week, we did part one of the Factor kidnapping tale. So to recap, we had Jake Factor, brother of makeup giant Max Factor. Born in England or Poland. Somewhere. He was born somewhere. In 1888 or 1892. He was born sometime. And then emigrating to America, after which he rose from a shoe shiner to a uh, barber and became known as Jake the Barber in many circles, but hated that name. And then he proceeded to just basically go around bilking everyone after that. Uh, stock fraud, land fraud... Some more stock fraud, some Ponzi schemes. Some oh, more some mail fraud. There was some mail fraud in there. That's right. Some mail fraud, some more stock fraud. Um, yeah, a lot of stock fraud. It was a pattern. And then he returned to America after bilking a bunch of Brits out of their money, including possibly some of the royal family, and was charged and tried in absentia in England, where he received 24 years, but he was in America, so they started extradition proceedings against him, and that was all ongoing and sort of not looking great when his son, Jerome, 19, was kidnapped. There were mobsters involved who were hunting down the kidnappers and then were put in a cell with the kidnappers. By the way, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go back. It's a ride. <laughs> go back. Go back, listen to that, then listen to this one. It'll all tie together. And then uh, Jerome Factor was released and left on the street at 2.30 a.m. And that's where we left him. So he told his own tale in his own words to the International News Service. Quote, at the outset, I want to say that the kidnappers treated me with every courtesy and thoughtfulness. But at no time did they permit me to get a glimpse of them, and I could not identify my captors. He had been, I believe, uh, kidnapped for eight days total. He tells the story, but there's, there's just some inconsistencies here. He said he was coming back to his mom's house after dinner with his dad at the point where he was kidnapped. But his dad, Jake, had been in D.C. at the time. I was actually going to question that because in his story, he was at dinner with his father in a hotel suite. And in the story that came out prior to that, after you know, when he was kidnapped, he had been out to dinner in a movie with a friend. So, yeah, there's some inconsistencies there. 
He says two men took him, shoved him into a sedan, had him take off his glasses and coat, and made him hide on the floor covered by his coat. And they said, well, kid, we are going to find out how much your dad thinks of you. So they drove him around for about an hour and a half, and then the kidnappers carried him upstairs two flights into a dark room, showed him a mattress, and then covered his eyes. He said the room looked a lot like a coffin, so I guess just small and dark. That was where he spent the next eight days. He was kidnapped on Wednesday, April 12th. The news got out on April 16th, and then early morning of the 21st, he was released. He says it really wasn't too bad, like he said. The kidnappers asked him for his preferred meals and brought him reading material, and he even got to read about his own kidnapping. There you go. There you go. like being at your own funeral in a way. In a weird way, yes. (laughs) Very weird way. If anyone came into the room, they wore a pillowcase over their head with holes for eyes, (laughs) which is horrifying and funny at the same time, and also very Texarkana. Oh, it's it's hilarious, though. It's like, I'm too cheap to spring for a mask. <laughs> Let me just cut holes in this pillowcase. You know they're sharing it. They're like, no, don't fuck up another pillowcase. My wife is going to kick my ass. <laughs> just use this one. I only drooled a little. It's the depression. We cannot be spending all our money in pillowcases. There's a reason that we are holding someone for ransom, and it's because we don't have pillowcase money. <laughs> yeah, don't have that pillowcase money. When we get the money, we'll buy so many pillowcases. I promise. I'll get you a silk one, Martha. Yeah. Martha, you're getting silk. So he says that the ransom request was actually for 100000 not 50000 as was in the note that was printed in the newspaper, reproduced, actually, a picture of it. He knows that because the the kidnappers dictated the letter with instructions for delivering the ransom, and he was to write it, which is also strange. Not really. It's his handwriting. His his dad would recognize his handwriting. But he called his dad Jack, and the note very much did not look like it was written by somebody with a lot of education. It was kind of a almost childlike scrawl. It just really does not look like the handwriting of a young man who is in pre-legal at Northwestern, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I used to work with lawyers, and a lot of them have really terrible handwriting. Well, there is that, yeah. It's entirely possible. He said, But the instructions were so indefinite that my father became confused, and as it turned out, that that circumstance saved him a cool 100000 I guess. He also said the kidnappers had their own problems because every time they tried to go out and get the ransom, they'd be followed. And they were afraid that Jake Factor might have someone tailing them. And they thought that maybe if they met up with Factor, he might have someone hiding in the car with a machine gun. You know, duck down, have your gun, and then pop up when you see the kidnappers and blast away. And maybe maybe golf bags back there. Yeah, yeah, golf bags. We have good old Sam golf bag hunting on this, so... After that, they transferred him to another house, and then finally they put him in a car, and they said, Buddy, we're going to release you now, and you might be interested to know we didn't get any money for all this trouble. Then they dropped him off blindfolded on a street corner, and he hailed a cab and went home. How did he pay for this cab, you ask? With the $15 in his pocket that the kidnappers had not taken. You know... That'll buy you a couple of pillowcases. It would have bought a few pillowcases. I'm just saying. 
or other things. Well, they probably didn't even think to search him because he's he's the victim. He's the kidnapped. Like, why would the kid you kidnap, especially a college kid, you wouldn't expect a college kid to have any cash on him. A rich college kid who just went out to the movies and dinner. He's coming back from a night out. Probably at least has some change in his pocket. And it's the depression. You scrape together whatever you can. Especially if, if again, if you're kidnapping someone for ransom. That's fair, actually. That is fair. <laughs> and I do have in my tiny that I'm going to be telling you um, tomorrow in our world. <laughs> I, I have a case where the kidnapped person's money is taken by a kidnapper. You know, in a similar amount. $10 in that case. So yes, the kidnappers have not taken it. And so they dropped him off on the street around 2.30 a.m. with his blindfold and his 15 bucks. Meanwhile, Jake Factor is vowing vengeance for the kidnapping. I'm going to get them. Exactly, yes. He says, I will bring my son's abductors to justice if it's the last thing I do. And he hires Pinkertons to track them down. Fucking Pinkertons. (laughs) So the police are questioning the three men that in the last episode we had who are arrested for this kidnapping through a somewhat convoluted and pretty obviously engineered ploy to get the cops to kidnap these three men, or kidnap... (laughs) Kind of. (laughs) Sort of, yes. It works. To get the cops... Arrested, kidnapped. kidnapped. Sometimes it's the same thing. (laughs) Six half a dozen. So, yes, to arrest these three men. And during this interrogation, it's like a freaking family reunion. You've got... Factor in there, Jake Factor, as well as Jerome's mother, plus two of her relatives. There you go. <laughs> Just bring in the whole family. We'll have we'll make a day of it. We'll have some potato salad or something. Maybe a three-legged race? Stuffed camel. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't take long for Jake Factor to admit that he faked the ransom note. You know, the one his son said he wrote. To confuse the kidnappers. This is basically meant to make them each think that the other had double-crossed them because the fake ransom note asked for $50,000 and the real ransom note asked for $100,000. So the kidnappers would think, oh, they're trying to get a whole $50,000, which if it were two kidnappers, they would have split it that way anyhow. (laughs) Probably, but uh, uh, none of this makes sense to anybody anyhow. It's, It's all very illogical. And so now the police think that maybe the three men they arrested were framed for the sake of a distraction. You're finally catching on there, huh? There you go. We got there. (laughs) It took a minute, but we got there. Took a minute or two. And so, you know, this distraction would allow Factor and his guys, his mob dudes, to go about their business with less attention. Well, yeah. I mean, why would you pay attention to them? They're the victims. Yeah, yeah. There's also... The fact that some parts of Jerome's story contradicted other things his father had said. Like he'd written the instructions sent to his father, who said he got no instructions. But that also contradicts the fact that his father said he'd driven around and planned to meet up with the kidnappers and there was a gunfight and everything. The contradictions contradict each other too. Yeah. (laughs) Like there's contradictions baked in. It's an onion of contradiction. We had dinner together. I was in D.C. (laughs) I got no instructions. I got instructions. So these three men who had been arrested were released. There's some question as to whether the case is closed or not. Different different authorities say different things. And the general theory 
is that this kidnapping was, of course, an inside job. And it was meant to get England to stand down with their whole extradition order because they would seem really cold-hearted if they extradited a man whose beloved son had just been kidnapped. Exactly. Don't want to look bad in the press. Well, and, and they really did the PR gambit with promoting all of the good deeds that he was doing, with giving out the gift baskets and, and the uh, Jewish charities of Chicago. I had like a whole drive to raise $405,000. So as his son is kidnapped, they're like, oh, but look at all the good he does when he's here. Oh, and his son is gone. Don't you feel anything? Yeah, they're really promoting this philanthropy. And then he's also, you know, kind of crying poor mouth and saying, oh, people think I have a ton of money, but I don't. But if you don't have a ton of money, then how are you making 3,000 gift baskets, you know? <laughs> yeah, and each basket had 15 pounds of matzos and two chickens. That's not cheap. In addition to many other foods in generous amounts. Those are big-ass baskets. Yeah, this is, this is somebody who has plenty of money. Like you said, they're working the PR. They are, and they're like, he gave them anonymously, but we happen to know that it was him. And isn't he just a stand-up fella? He's just the best guy in the world. And his poor son has been kidnapped. As we said when we teased this episode last week, history repeats itself. It rarely repeats itself quite so quickly as it does here. On July 1st, two and a half months after his son's kidnapping, Jake Factor was kidnapped. His extradition appeal was still being considered by the courts at the time. And this was a very dramatic kidnapping and also with some funny moments. He was at the Dells Roadhouse in Morton Grove, Illinois with a group of friends and family I know that sounds like Roadhouse, sounds kind of like maybe shady or something, but I looked up an article about this Roadhouse that gave its very long history. The dance floor had room for 900. Oh, wow. They had like big bands playing there all the time. They had lobster and chicken and, well, I mean, chicken's not that fancy, but frog legs. I mean, frog legs are pretty fancy, you know, <laughs> like it was a fancy joint. So it was a fancy dance hall. Yeah, yeah, essentially. And uh, they spent the evening, this group of friends and families with Factor, drinking champagne and playing the wheel, because you could also gamble there. So the group, which included his son Jerome and Jake's wife, left just after midnight. They left in three cars, because it's a big party. So Jake and Jerome Factor were in one car with attorney Al Epstein, Jake's wife, Rella, was in another car with the rest of the women of the party. And then the third car, which was in the lead, had some of the younger men, you know, around Jerome's age, who had joined in on the festivities. The car with Jerome and Jake in it, Jerome was driving it, and it was forced off the road. And four to ten, <laughs> anywhere between four and ten masked men... There's a big difference between four and ten. Especially when you're talking about masked men with shotguns. I feel like if it was nine or ten, okay. Four or ten, you know... <laughs> I mean, I get it was chaotic, but still, there's something about that. These four to ten men 
with shotguns and masks, surrounded the car. Now, the car carrying the women was ahead, and it also stopped when they saw that something was going on here. The gunmen dragged Jake Factor from the car, as well as Al Epstein, and told the ladies' car to get along. Get along, ladies! They forced Factor and Epstein into another car and blindfolded them and then raced off. Factor said to Epstein, For God's sakes, do as they tell you or they'll bump you off. I love old-timey talk. I do, too. It's the best. They'll bump you off. Don't want to get bumped off. I mean, he is an Epstein. Uh, so. Oh. <laughs> After about a half mile, the kidnappers dumped Epstein, telling him to keep his mask on for a while or he would be killed. After he waited the appointed amount of time, he took off his mask and then basically hitched back to his hotel, where he would then begin the search for Jake Factor. Now, interesting side note about that third car, the one that I said was leading the caravan. It had Epstein's son, who was 19, and another boy around the same age. They were in the front, so they didn't realize that the other cars had stopped. They kept going, and then they got pulled over for speeding. And they asked the policeman to hurry up writing the ticket because they didn't want their parents to drive past and see them getting busted for speeding, which is kind of cute. <laughs> I don't want Dad to see. No, I don't want Dad to know. Those same cops then continued down the road where they ran into the women from the party who told them about the kidnapping. <laughs> there you go. These same cops are just having run-ins with uh, this whole party tonight. So then, the ultimate role reversal. In the last episode, we had Jake Factor holed up in a hotel searching for his son. And in this episode, we have Jerome Factor holed up at the same hotel and trying to orchestrate his father's release. The police suspected that the Tui gang, which was an Irish mob syndicate, was behind the kidnapping. Uh, sometimes called the Terrible Tuis. Oh, man. <laughs> it's got alliteration, at least, right? It does, but oh, Lord. <laughs> at what cost? Doesn't even sound like a scary gang. <laughs> oh, the Terrible Tuis are coming after you. They might throw a tantrum. Right? That's what I'm... Are you going to throw yourself on the ground and cry until I come with you? Oh. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Okay. Is that a really weird? There's like like that website where people post pictures of their children, their, you know, toddlers and what made them cry. Mm -hmm. Like, she wanted grapes and I told her she could have grapes. Yes. <laughs> Stuff like that. I'm just That's imagining, real life. I'm imagining that, but with mobsters. <laughs> and it's fun in my head what's going on. <laughs> like, I think we should make like a joke Facebook post for this with just pictures of mobsters that look like they're having tantrums. And then, you know, a little caption about what made them cry. He asked me if he could have his submachine gun, and I said he could have his submachine gun. I told him he was out of bullets, because <laughs> yeah. he used them all. <laughs> oh, Lord. So, with the terrible twoies, <laughs> the, the state attorney's office was really focusing on them. And the, the captain of the state attorney's office gathered police chiefs from 22 suburbs around Chicago, where the Tuies were active. And the captain said he wanted the help of these police chiefs in banishing the Tui gang, not just from the county, but from the whole state. No more Tuies in Illinois. I don't give a Tui. <laughs> yeah. Three men from the Tui gang were said to have been loitering around the Dells 
the roadhouse about 45 minutes before Factor's party left. Early gossip pinpointed the ransom demand as, again, a large range, anywhere between 100000 and 250000 Although Jerome refused to say whether he'd even heard anything from the kidnappers. And the papers even noted that Jerome didn't seem terribly bothered by the lack of communication. Up to midnight last night, with nearly 24 hours passed since the abduction, young Factor seemed not unduly concerned over the failure of the gang to communicate with him or his father's friends thus far. Having been held eight days last April before his own release, the first 48 hours without communication by the kidnappers with his father, the boy was cognizant that the kidnap tactics involve imposing a period of suspense upon their prisoners' friends before opening negotiations. So, in a, in a way, I think I could kind of understand it. So he just got kidnapped, and then he, he was treated pretty well, and he was let go with no issue. They didn't hurt him. They didn't torture him. They fed him. And he was there a day or two before they had him write the letter. Yeah, it seems that way. So he's probably thinking that, like, okay, this is probably exactly like my kidnapping. It's going to be the same deal. Yeah, same deal. No need to panic, guys. Give it eight days. They'll drop them back off. It's fine. No, it's factor kidnapping part two. It's going to follow the same formula. You, one would think. Yeah. So he was so unworried about this that he and Epstein left the hotel after 24 hours, saying there wasn't much use in sticking around, and both of them went home. That left Factor's attorney, who was not Epstein, Epstein was just a family friend, in charge at the hotel, along with, quote, Factor's man, Leon Bleat, a secretive individual, <laughs> who aided the father in negotiations at the time of Jerome's abduction. You just don't expect to hear Leon Bleat, a secretive individual. Leon Bleat was the secretary that wrote all the, the letters and stuff for him, I bet. No, that guy was in, I think his last name was Gein. No, but -E that was the guy back there. Was, oh, this might be his guy. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe. He can't read or write. He needs a guy. Yeah, he does need a guy. You're right. He is Factor's man, Leon Bleat. Probably wipes <laughs> his ass for him, too. Yeah. So the ransom demand finally came in. It was for 75000 and the calls came to Jerome's mother's house. Jerome described the caller. It was a man whose voice seemed to be of middle age. He spoke in a quiet, cultured voice. He seemed to be well-educated. Now, Jerome said he had no access to his dad's securities, so can't really pay this ransom. And he wasn't even sure if Factor's current wife could get a hold of the money. I mean, he can ask her. <laughs> yeah, she might have the answer. And even with Jerome saying all of this to the paper... Factor's lawyer issued a statement that there had been no ransom demand, not a peep out of the kidnappers, and that, quote, suggestions and estimates of Mr. Factor's wealth are unfortunately extremely exaggerated. Which is exactly what he said when they wanted a ransom for Jerome. He's like, I don't have that kind of money. I don't know why everybody thinks I'm so rich, because I'm so rich. I'm so rich. I don't have any money. <laughs> I'm just, you know, a... Poor fraudster. It was said that Factor's friends and family would try to get some money together. And yet one of Factor's friends said no one had asked anyone to try to raise the money. Again, contradictions left and right. Except now they're coming out in real time. 
instead of after the fact, like last time. Yeah, and they're really bad at keeping their stories straight or together. Yeah, very much so, yes. Soon after that, Jerome says, well, I think maybe my father can make a gentleman's agreement with the kidnappers. Sure, okay. That they'll let him go if he promises to get them their ransom one way or the other. Since apparently Jerome and Factor's wife, Rella, have no access to the money. Yeah, we don't have any access to his bank accounts. You're going to have to let him go and have him get you the money. Mm-hmm. He also says, I am sure my father can cope with the kidnappers. From my own experience, the picture I get is that he is in some house surrounded by four or five men who are armed. They are pointing guns at him. My father is cool. The more guns pointing at him, the cooler he would be. I thought that his Jerome's kidnappers treated him with the utmost courtesy and respect. Yeah. Not pointed guns at him all the time. I thought his experience was quite, you know, nice, except for the weirdness of having men with, you know, pillowcases and holes cut out for eyes. Yeah, because during his, his whole thing with the paper, he didn't say a single thing about them having guns. Not really. Nope. He also admitted... That even though the ransom demand caller had said to stay at his mother's house for further word, he'd been staying elsewhere because he was afraid the police had his mom's phone tapped. If a call came in, police might try to get the kidnappers in rescuing my father. That might not be so nice. Finally, the press comes out and says it. We're finally speaking the truth. It has been hinted that his present absence might be a ruse to enable him, him being Jake, to escape American jurisdiction. But Jerome, of course, denied that, naturally. There was also the idea that, uh, you know, there was a statute of limitations for the extradition and maybe he could just wait out that clock and then waltz back in and be fine. Yeah. There were also theories that Factor might be dead. And that this would be because he'd hired the Pinkertons to catch his son's kidnappers, who might be trying to stop that search. You know, you kill off the source of money to the Pinkertons, and the Pinkertons will, uh, well, they won't go home and sleep because Pinkertons never sleep. But they'll stop, they'll go work on something else. They'll find a new project. Four days have gone by, and Factor's wife, Rella, is said to be on the verge of a nervous breakdown and is ordered on bed rest. Jerome now has bodyguards, and there's also a picture in the paper of him doing an interview with reporters, and he's in his bathrobe. I'm like, dude. Of course he is. (laughs) When you have this many mobsters involved, you need to look cool. Yeah, hanging around in your bathrobe. I don't know what image he was trying to project there. Unbothered. Unbothered. It really feels that way. He's just chill. He's just, you know, hanging out in his bathrobe, all comfy. Ain't nobody got time for that. Right? Multiple false tips send police careening all over the place, only to find out they'd been hoodwinked. Uh, This is the first kidnapping case, I can say, where I suspect the false tips came from the kidnapping victim himself. Probably. Or people associated. I mean, keep the police busy with false information, and they won't have time to focus on the fact that you essentially had yourself kidnapped. Yeah. And there's still no new word from the actual kidnappers. After five days, secretive individual Leon Bleat made a cryptic statement. Nothing now, but tomorrow, after the banks are open, there should be a good story to tell. So everybody took from this, 
that they had found a way to access the money and that they would give the money to the kidnappers and make the exchange. By day six, the kidnapping is moved off the front page. It's now third page news in Chicago. Boring. Yeah, this is just put it with the sports and stuff. And the story of the ransom demand has changed. Now, it's said that one of Jerome's friends received the call and the demand was for 200000 This story is just all over the place. It's almost like they're trying to confuse people. Now, the theory on that is that Jerome is doing what his dad supposedly did, making the kidnappers think that one of their own is going behind their backs, that there's a double cross happening here, so they don't trust each other. Or some people think that the delay is just because Factor is, uh, as the newspaper puts it, dickering with the kidnappers. And so even though the day has passed, the banks have been open all day, secretive individual Leon Bleat is still like, well, maybe a good story will break today. They're coming, coming through the door right now. Any Anytime. minute. <laughs> Any minute. Then on day seven... We get some word from across the pond, but actually, you know, the consulate in the U.S. The British think that this is all a hoax and that the feds need to get Factor and put him in jail. But they think that may not be super easy because their theory is that Factor might have fled to Mexico to escape extradition. In this same article, this is wacky. There's a tidbit out of Eufaula, Oklahoma. E-U-F-A-U-L-A. Okay. I think I'm pronouncing it right. Maybe. That someone had found a cardboard box in the street there. And in that box was a note supposedly from Factor begging for someone to save him from Capone's, Al Capone's henchmen who were spiriting him off to Cuba. By way of Oklahoma, apparently. Yeah, that, um, I don't think happens very much. Is there a tunnel in Oklahoma? <laughs> right? <laughs> the fuck? Now, the thing that tipped everybody off that this was a hoax, aside from the fact that it happened in Eufaula, Oklahoma, was that it was signed Jake the Barber. He hated that name. He would never do that. Yeah, he would never sign it like that. Mm-hmm. So, the Bureau of Investigation is now agreeing the idea that maybe Factor is actually on the run and they're looking towards Mexico. But the local police and the state's attorney's office in, in Chicago and Illinois are still going after the Tui gang for the kidnapping. So you have a split in what everybody thinks. Chicago and Illinois in general, the authorities there are like, it's, it's the Tuis. They're terrible. And the feds are like, it's Factor. He's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Why not both? So, yeah, sure. Naturally, the family is like, hey, federal people, maybe, maybe stop looking for him. Stop looking for, for Jake. This will, this will interfere with all of our negotiations if you're completely looking elsewhere. No, it won't. If they're looking at freaking Mexico, that's not going to interfere with the damn thing going on in Chicago. Or even you fall up. Wherever they might be. Yes. And the police are also guarding... Factor's youngest son, who is now seven, Alvin, he had been staying at the home of some family friends. They got a mysterious call 
that's not really elaborated on at all. And then saw a few strange men loitering around their house. So they basically wanted him off their hands. They wanted no involvement if something bad was about to happen there. And then a dramatic new development came about. Rella Factor, Jake's wife, got a letter containing the sapphire ring that Factor had been wearing when he was kidnapped. I really want to picture this ring. There's no pictures. I'm interested in jewelry. I want to see it. I kind of want to see it, too. I'm imagining, like, a a pinky ring with all of his, like, little mob ties. Exactly. Yep. Also, along with this ring, was some sort of note with some references to his brokerage accounts. And these were references that only Factor would know. And a new demand for $200,000. That's in the paper. The family, once again, denied that any such thing had happened. So finally... After what's billed as 12 days of terror by the press, Jake Factor is released on July 13th. History again repeating itself. Yeah, and again, why are we releasing kidnap victims before we have ransom? Well, we don't know if they have the ransom or not because it is very confusing, and that is on purpose. So they say he's exhausted and half-blind. He had been let out of a car in LaGrange, only about 18 miles east of his home, and less than a minute later, two policemen found him wandering, and he's crying. He says, I'm Jake Factor. Please notify my wife that I am safe. He told the police at that point that a ransom had been paid, but he didn't know how much, and that actually the kidnappers at first had wanted $500,000. And then later, of course, the whole family denied that any ransom had been paid. It's just constant confusion. We paid it. No, we didn't. Yes, we did. No, we didn't. (laughs) It was 200,000. It was 500,000. It was 250,000. He said he'd been blindfolded with tape the whole time. Uh, His white suit that he'd been wearing when he left the roadhouse was dirty and wrinkled. He'd grown about an inch long beard. His eyes seemed heavy and weak from being taped up for 12 days. He was very sensitive to the light. He said he'd been treated fairly well by the seven to eight men who'd kidnapped him. Well, it's right between four and ten, so... Somewhere in there. He was kept in a basement with an iron door under heavy guard by armed men, and sometimes there were as many as 20 men in the house. Sounds like a party. I mean, how do you know if you're in, like, a basement? Just guessing by a footsteps upstairs? Or voices? Yeah, I don't know, so... There was another location transfer, just like in Jerome's case, this time to a farmhouse. Of course, he was still blindfolded, but he could hear cows and chickens, and there he was handcuffed to a bed. The kidnappers seemed to imply that there was the possibility of torture if they didn't get their way, but they didn't get violent, quote, except once when I was poked in the stomach. That is not violence. (laughs) Yeah. That's tickling, is what that is. Ooh, that tickles. You're torturing me. Oh, well, tickling can be torture sometimes. He said that they had taken his sapphire ring. The story changes, and then it changes back. And the police thought that that was the inciting incident that got the ransom paid, as it happened about 48 hours before he was released. And then the paper said that the ransom was believed to be 75000 I think that's the, like, eighth number we've heard. Yeah, it it keeps changing. So then, 
Factor tells the police that the kidnappers were looking at three other wealthy Chicagoans to kidnap, and that they had told Factor that they would let him go if, quote, he set up some of his rich friends for the snatch. End quote. Can you set up any of my friends with the snatch? (laughs) So, Factor says, a new story. He gave the men a down payment of $50,000 with a promise of $150,000 more as long as they didn't kidnap or harm Jerome or Alvin. It's, it's, it's a lease. I'm going to lease these kidnappers so yeah. they don't kidnap my kids. Yes, it's very weird. It's mortgaging his freedom. This all seems very much like a frame-up job for the Tui gang, and sure enough, go ahead and say it. <laughs> Factor fingered Tui. <laughs> As the mastermind. Roger Tui, that would be. <laughs> Roger Terrible Tui. Yes. They also suspect the Tui gang in another kidnapping. That is the kidnapping of William Ham, H-A-M-M. If that sounds familiar, he was the grandson of famous brewer Theodore Ham of Ham's Beer. That had happened in mid-June. William Ham was let out after three days and paying a ransom of $100,000. Do you see how cut and dry that is? Yeah. Short, brief, everything happens quickly. And an exchange is made, and we know the numbers. There's no variation, as far as I know. We'll probably cover that case at some point in time. But, like, it's not 18 million different numbers flying around. It's not 12 days. It's just very, like, professional and expedient. Yes, it's an expedient kidnapping. Which is what you would expect from, say, a criminal syndicate. Hmm. The police bring in Tui. And three of his men, that's Willie Sharkey, Edward Father Tom McFadden, and Gustav Gloomy Gus Schaefer for the kidnapping of (sighs) Ham. Uh, But when they go on trial in November, William Ham can't reliably identify them, and the jury acquits. Then, like six days later, these three men, well, these four men, were arrested for the Jake Factor kidnapping. And the authorities in St. Paul had even kept them in jail after the ham acquittal because they figured that Chicago would want them. That seems like today it's probably illegal. It's probably (laughs) illegal now. But back then, it's fine. One of them, Willie Sharkey, uh, died by suicide in the, the jail cell because he felt that the case looked hopeless. Even This was after the acquittal, too. They were acquitted of the ham kidnapping, and but he knows that they're going to end up on trial for the Jake Factory kidnapping, and he just feels it's hopeless. And so the very same day, the Supreme Court denies Factor's extradition appeal. So it's looking bad for him. But the Tui case would save him. And I'm sure this was the plan all along. The extradition was reversed because of a letter from the Secretary of State noting that Factor might still be needed to testify regarding the kidnapping 
and in any subsequent appeals. And Factor is released and he's no longer going to be extradited. That's canceled. We're not doing that. You're not you're not gonna off your pop to England. Yeah, we're gonna need him to testify. He is now a material witness. You can't have him, he's ours. There's also some habeas corpus stuff in there and some statute of limitation stuff. I read the actual judgment and it's all very legal and confusing. So but but this was a, a, a this was a big <laughs> it had to happen at some point. Factor. Uh... <laughs> it was inevitable. You can't avoid it. In his Uh, managing to quash this extradition order was the fact that he needed to stay and testify. And yeah, that's it all worked exactly as planned, in my opinion. So the Tui gang is on trial and the first one ends in a mistrial. But the second one ends in the three men each found guilty and sentenced to 99 years in prison. That's a long time. It really is. Now, half the jury wanted them to get the electric chair, so this was a compromise. Probably better, I guess. Yeah. Soon after that, they also convict another Tui gang member, Basil the Owl Banghart. These names. I know. We've got terrible Tui, gloomy Gus, father dead, the owl And the owl also gets 99 years. In 1942, so we're going to follow Tui a little bit before we circle back to Factor. Tui and the owl manage an escape. They're on the lam for just shy of three months before they're caught by the FBI. And for their troubles, they get another 199 years tacked on. Well, it's not like they were getting out anyway. Well, in the 50s, Roger Tui's family is still working to get him out. They hire a private investigator who digs up some witnesses who reveal that Jake Factor spent his time as a supposed abductee drinking and playing cards. Of course he did. Sounds about right. Mm-hmm. In 1954, a federal judge declares that there had been no kidnapping, but there had been perjury in the trial for the kidnapping. And that was why Tui was behind bars. That federal judge ordered Roger Tui's immediate release. For some reason, that didn't happen. It took five more years. Tui was finally released on parole in 1959 after being in prison for 26 years. He was freed in late November, and his wife had waited for him all that time. Aww. He even told her, move on with your life, you know? You can be happy with someone else. And she stuck by him and she worked to get him released. So he'd also published an autobiography about the supposed kidnapping and everything that ensued. And of course, Jake Factor was suing him for $3 million for that. Now, uh, Factor would never see that money because less than a month after Tui's release, he was gunned down on his sister's front steps. It was December 16th, and the case was never solved. Yeah, I have that uh, 25 days after walking out of the prison gates. It might have even been less than that, because I think he was released somewhere around November 25th to the 28th, if I remember correctly. So it might have even been just like three weeks. 
But, you know, it's that's quibbling over a couple of days, but it was a couple of days that he had left to live. And it seems so incredibly unfair. You go to jail for something you, you didn't do. You're in there for 26 years. You finally get out and you get three weeks before you're murdered. Yeah. Well, he was murdered in Chicago and Jake Factor was in Chicago at the time. What do you know? He was whining and dining with his entourage on Rush Street when he heard the news and he was... Oh, he just felt so bad for Tui. And yet, when Tui escaped and then was recaught, Jake Factor threw a celebration. I know. <laughs> it's just... So we're going to go back to Factor. In 1942, just a few months before Roger Tui escaped, Jake was charged with mail fraud, accusing him and 11 others with Swindling 300 people in Iowa in a whiskey scam. Hashtag sentences I never thought I'd say. <laughs> but sure. Sure. He pled guilty, surprisingly. But he told the judge that his motivation for the plea was because he'd received threats against himself and his family. He got 10 years in prison, uh, of which he served six despite his insistence that he'd never been to Iowa in his whole life. But it's a mail fraud scam, so I'm pretty sure you can commit it without ever going to Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> it can be done. That's the magic of mail. But good try. Good sure. try. Yeah. Never been there. It's just funny that he's like, you know, Tui is recaptured, and Factor is like, yay, champagne and lobster for everyone. And then a month later, he's in prison himself. <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of hilarious. So when he gets out after his six years, he did the mobster thing. He took over running the Stardust Hotel in Vegas in the mid-50s. And then he sold it in the 60s for $7 million, which would be $64 million today. And then around that same time, because of two things, his previous conviction... And also, the fact that he was still not a U.S. citizen. Deportation proceedings started to send him back to his birthplace of England. Or possible birthplace of England. Possible birthplace. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes you throw your money around philanthropically. Sometimes you throw it around at the casino. Sometimes you throw it around politically. And that's what he did he had donated $22,000 to the Kennedy campaign in 1960. And I'm sure that has nothing to do with the fact that JFK pardoned Factor Christmas of 1962. Nothing. Completely unrelated. Factor insisted that he gave just as much to Nixon's campaign the same year. Factor got his citizenship the following year, moved to Los Angeles, did some philanthropic work there. And in 1984, at age 91, he died of a long illness. Do you have anything else on Jake Factor? I know that, that Jake actually tried to um, bail out Jimmy Hoffa oh. at one point. So uh, the IRS came after him with tax fraud. He didn't pay taxes from 1935 to 1939. And they found a large amount of money that he could not remember how he got. Is he a uh, factor or Hoffa in this case? This is factor. Factor, okay. Yeah, so factor didn't pay taxes, had a giant chunk of change, but couldn't remember where it came from. 
And then he tried to bail out Jimmy Hoffa from Jimmy Hoffa's financial Florida real estate problems. <laughs> but the last 20 years of his life, he, he really was doing a lot for California's ghettos. He spent millions of dollars building churches, gyms, parks, low-cost housing. And actually, when he died, three U.S. senators and the mayor of Los Angeles attended his funeral. Wow. Yeah, the Factor family in general did seem to do a great deal philanthropically. Jake Factor and then uh, Max Factor's empire after he passed. He passed in 1938. Not too long after Jake Factor had been dealing with all the extradition stuff and the kidnapping. So Max Factor had been in Paris. He got an extortion note threatening his life if he didn't pay up. And nothing actually came of this, but it upset him so bad that he ended up going back to home to Beverly Hills. There had also been an accident in recent years that had left him in poor health, too. Back to Beverly Hills. Basically went to bed and stayed there for three months until he died at age 60. Wow. Which the Factor family tends to, they, they have a, a lot of longevity. It seems like everybody dies in their 80s or their 90s with, with, you know, a couple of exceptions. So, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of charitable giving um, until the uh, Max Factor's great-grandson got the inheritance. And then... Um, that all ended when he was incarcerated for rape in 2003. He's not actually, not that it matters, but he's not actually blood-related. He was uh, adopted by uh, one of Max Factor's daughters. Oh. Or not him, but his, his grandfather, if I'm getting that right. So he's, he's from a, a different line, so it's kind of crazy how that, that money ended up flowing where it flowed to, and then he kind of changed the whole game with making it, yeah, let's party all the time and rape people. And uh, so he's still there. Good. Yeah. All right. I have a, instead of a recipe, I have a menu oh, for you. Oh, a menu. So this was, of course, 1933. And with the Depression ongoing, people were looking to save. So we have this uh, Mary Mead's menus utilizing today's bargains. All right. So, for tomorrow's breakfast, just wait. I can't believe that obesity rates skyrocketed later. Into you here. Tomorrow's breakfast. Baked pears, prepared puffed cereal, grilled pecan rolls, bacon strips, coffee, milk. That's a nice big breakfast. That's a big breakfast, yeah. Lunch would be baked green peppers stuffed with rice and cheese, fried apples, scalloped cabbage, minced meat turnovers, tea, and milk. Dinner, roast ham, Orange and raisin sauce, mm -mm. baked squash, riced potatoes, cabbage and banana salad, Ew. apple and cranberry sauce, donuts, and coffee. This is too much food. That's a lot of food, unless you're serving very, very small portions, because portion size have increased in the past several decades. But, like, that is... That's a giant amount of food and a giant amount of cooking. And I know that we, we've said previously that you can combine things like onions or cabbage with fruits and have it be good. You know, we, we put apples in our sauerkraut, too, on New yeah. Year's Day, Pennsylvania tradition. But bananas are not one of those things. No. <laughs> that was the moment when I was like, oh, yes, it'll be this one. <laughs> See, I, I love reading these menu suggestions because 
All right, so like I, I don't even know how I'm still alive. I'm gonna tell you what I eat in a day. I'll go through today. So, so as of right now that we're recording, it is 6.31. And today I woke up at six to work. I've had two pots of coffee, uh, a latte with an extra shot of espresso from uh, Dunkin', 15 strips of bacon, and a uh, triple shot energy coffee drink from Starbucks. That is all I've had today. My uh, medication is really messing with my appetite. So you want to hear what I've had? Mm -hmm. Probably about half a pot of coffee, uh, a couple glasses of water, and four bites of leftover goulash. Maybe five. <laughs> that, that, that's it. I'm starving right now. Yeah. But it's also a weird day because of, like, you know, when we decided to start recording and I had a whole bunch of stuff going on in the afternoon. You've had five bites of goulash. I've had 15 strips of bacon. That is the only solid food the two of us have eaten. But there <laughs> is a giant charcuterie board waiting for us. I'm going to tear it up. Wait I'm until you tear it up. see this thing. Amber, it has everything goat cheese. That's goat cheese rolled in everything bagel topping. Oh. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, hey, we're going to be done <laughs> yeah, because let's... I need to tear up some food. Yeah, let's just, we're not going to do the, the normal outro type stuff. We're just going to stop and go eat food. So, you know, links to anything you want are possibly in the show notes. If not, they're, you know, on social media somewhere and, uh, you know, our link tree, you can find all that stuff there. And uh, don't kidnap yourself would be our special request this week. Don't kidnap yourself. Don't have your son kidnapped. Don't do any of that. Have fun. Eat food. Not as much as that menu, but more than us. Yes, yes. More and uh, of a better like, variety, I guess. Right. <laughs> 15 strips of bacon. Not that I blame you. <laughs> no, like I ordered it from Dunkin'. It's like oh, the, the sweet the candy peppery. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's expensive, but I'll do it. All right. On that note, let's go tear that shit up, Amber. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye. My sources are The Kidnap Years, The Astonishing True History of the Forgotten Kidnapping Epidemic That Shook Depression-Era America by David Stout, John Tui on My Family Business, and also on Roger Tui, Gangster, the Max Factor article on Wikipedia, Dr. Matthew Partridge in Money Week, the Bank of England Inflation Calculator, Along the Gradient, Major Smolinski, uh, Case Text, and from Newspapers.com, The Evening Standard, Evening News, Daily News, and Chicago Tribune. My sources this week are Wikipedia, Pressreader.com from the Chicago Sun-Times by Bill Cundiff, JTA.org, Newspapers.com, thank you, Chris Garcia, uh, articles from the Chicago Tribune, the Evening News out of Wilkes-Barre, and the San Francisco Examiner, and also MyFamilyBusiness.org. Jerome described the caller. Yeah, that's a pretty good description. I never want to put like a burp or something in a blooper, but I, I, I might. <laughs> I was really proud that I kept a straight face for as long as I did. Yeah, that's, that was impressive, yes. <laughs> Fuck, I'm broken. <laughs> I broke me. I broke me. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. All right. Deep breaths.
Okay, all right. I got to get it out because as soon as I look <laughs> down, it just says factor finger Dewey. <laughs> okay. Okay, step one, <laughs> look over and see if I'm about to take a sip. <laughs> step two, use that information to decide whether you're saying something that might make me spit out my coffee <laughs> on the microphone. <laughs> factor finger terrible Dewey. <laughs> factor finger terrible Dewey. <laughs> the page so I stopped seeing that sentence. Okay, good good plan, good plan. Jerome described the caller. It was a man whose voice seemed to be <laughs> fuck. <laughs> so as we're recording, I start like silently laughing and I just use my hand to try to hide my whole face from Christy. But I can still see it. <laughs> and I'm just silently over here shaking. Yes, I can I can also see the shaking. <laughs> This is all going to go at the end of the episode. <laughs> have, like, we're sober. You're yeah. drinking coffee, tea? <laughs> to be fair, I did add a little something to it. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in any way. Like, I'm, I'm drinking it very slowly. I'm drinking coffee, and I think we just got broken. Yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> the show has finally broken us. So, all right, we can do this. I just had, I'm, I'm struggling with getting through this sentence just because it feels like a trigger now. Because... <laughs> I'm just going to look before. at the sloth. Look at the sloth. Yeah, look at Slothy. So, Slothy's not amused by our <laughs> bullshit. It really isn't. That vacant sloth stare. All right. 